Welcome to Middle Grade Mavens, where two author mums discuss their favourite middle grade books, provide recommendations and share insider industry tips for authors trying their hand at middle grade. Julie Ann Grasso is the author of the Frankie DuPont mystery series, cupcake enthusiast and part-time library book wrangler. Pamela Eucherman is a writer, dancer and homeschooling mum who sometimes finds time for sleep. Both Julie and Pamela devour middle grade books, not only for research, but to share with their combined brood of four munchkins. Hi, Pamela, and welcome back to Middle Grade Mavens. Hello. It's uh, getting towards the end of the year. <laughs> yes, episode 32. I didn't even... Remember to say the episode number. <laughs> no, I didn't give you a chance, but I was just thinking um, it's about this time last year that we started um, putting episodes together. We did. Wow. Yeah, and the Mavens have been out and about. Tell us, Pamela, what have we been up to? We've had a busy weekend, haven't we? Um, so Julie and I had the honour of launching... A picture book over the weekend, a debut picture book of our fellow podcaster, Liz Ledden. Liz co-hosts the One More Page podcast with Nat Amor and Kate Simpson. And she came down to Melbourne to launch her book Tulip and Brutus at the publishing house. And the book is published by Ford Street Publishing. And since the book's illustrator, Andrew Plant, um, lives in Melbourne, it was a great opportunity for everyone to come together and as fellow podcasters, Liz asked Julie and I to launch the book. Oh, and we had so much fun doing it. Oh, it was a blast. So, Pamela, would you like to do a mini review of Tulip and Brutus, perhaps? Yeah, I'd love to. So this is for our friend Liz. Hi, Liz. <laughs> um, so Tulip and Brutus is, as I said, it's a picture book. And we are the middle grade mavens, but um, we will be a mixture of things today. Um, yes. And it's about Tulip, who is a ladybug, and Brutus, who is a stink bug. And they each have their own different worlds that they live in. And they are quite different, but they are more alike than they realise. When a storm washes them together and a predator threatens, they find that they are both fantastic at letting off a stink so horrible the predator leaves never to return. This cements a new and exciting friendship between two otherwise dissimilar bugs. The book is beautifully illustrated by Andrew Plant, who obviously did a lot of research about ladybugs and stink bugs before he began. He chose to illustrate the Australian native ladybug rather than the, the rather than the invasive European species, which is why it's orange. And he, he told us this. And of course, his bugs have that charm and personality that he brings to all of his characters. And I I learned a few things about bugs at this launch. Did you, Julie? Because yeah, yeah, I didn't know that ladybirds. I I keep saying ladybirds. It's like you Lady guys bug. We say ladybugs <laughs> in Australia, don't we? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that's my. Very um, faraway English coming through. Yes. Um, yeah, I, that ladybugs let, um, let off a smell when threatened. I didn't know that. Yeah, I so, did not know that either. There you go. It's, so it's a, <laughs> it's a charming little book um, and, yeah, just gorgeously illustrated and with a little bit of, you know, a hint of educational value in the background there, which is lovely. Yes, it yeah. was gorgeous. 
Um, and just before I finish, I want to give a shout out. <laughs> we don't do this very much, but I wanted to give a shout out to Kevin, who was at Hi, the door. Kevin. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> it was so lovely to meet Kevin. <laughs> yeah, Kevin listens to both uh, this podcast and one more page. And he isn't an author or a librarian or a teacher librarian. So we were very excited that we actually have a fan. (laughs) (laughs) And if you are a fan, listener, author or not, we would love to hear what you think of our podcast. So perhaps um, go on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Um, That'd be great. Or maybe just tag us on social media and, and let us know what you think because it's nice to know that people are listening and enjoying the podcast. Absolutely, yes. Now, because we are talking about picture books a little bit today, I thought I might add a couple that Giselle and I have recently declared to be two books we have to own in 2019. So, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Get your Christmas lists ready, folks. The first one is The Day Rudolph's Nose Turned Blue by Alison and Alan Reynolds, illustrated by Shane McGee, published by Lake Press in September 2019. Now, I must mention that Alison and Alan are friends of mine, so I got to see a very early iteration of this. And from the get-go, I was like, oh, yes, that is going to be snaffled up. And of course it was by Lake Press. So when I saw The Early Roughs by Shane McGee, I was positively gobsmacked. To read a manuscript and see it come to life was absolutely incredible. Now, um, this is actually Alan's first picture book, but Alison is somewhat prolific. We became fans of her writing when we read her Marmalade books. Um, The first being a new, no, A New Friend for Marmalade, I think is the first one. And then A Year with Marmalade is the second one. And we absolutely adored them. We also love her Prickle and Pickle and Brie um, Manor series, and she also writes for Middle Grade. And her Range of Danger series is one we are soon to tackle. So, oh, Alison is those. yeah. Oh, we need to borrow then. <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, you do. And actually, they were handed down from a cousin, and they are signed by Alison too. So that was oh, really cool. When I saw fantastic. That. Yeah. Now, Alison is also one of three incredible humans who voluntarily run Kitlet Vic, which we have um, mentioned many times. It is a dedicated children's industry conference run here in Melbourne, usually in May. And we have some very secret Mavens business going on right now that we will announce very soon. Um, So stay tuned, folks. Now. I did say I was going to actually talk about (laughs) the day Rudolph's nose turned blue. So let's get back to the blurb. "'Twas the day before Christmas. Santa tied his last bow. His sleigh was all packed up and ready to go. Reindeer, he called out as he looked around, but none of his reindeer helpers could be found. What will Santa do when all of his reindeer are unwell and can't pull a sleigh?" Can Christmas be saved? Now, told in rhyme, this is a rollicking good read, which I believe should be on everyone's Christmas list. Oh, but speaking wait. of Christmas lists. Pamela, I am. <laughs> <laughs> this was, one is, mm. this one, this second one is another one for the Christmas list. 
So it is called Lights on Cotton Rock by David Litchfield, published by Francis Lincoln Publishers in September 2019. And this is also one that we have to own. We actually got this out of the library um, and we both, Giselle and I, read it and we, our just mouths were open at the end. It was just so beautiful. So here's the blurb. A little girl witnesses an alien spaceship landing at Cotton Rock near her house. She visits the spaceship and meets a young alien, but is called home by her parents. She draws a picture of the alien she met and keeps returning to Cotton Rock as she grows up, in the hope that the UFO will eventually come back. Eventually, after many years, she's got a son and a granddaughter all of her own, and she's starting to give up hope. Oh, it is such a beautiful book. (laughs) You know, I was actually just today looking at the date going, okay, it's not that far till Christmas. What am I going to do? And um, I got the latest, you know, because we love the Scholastic Book Club. So I was going through there um, marking off a few uh, Christmassy books. If anybody has suggestions for great books um, for the season – yeah, please let us know um, on social yeah. media and we might um, put together, maybe we'll put together an episode or at least just a list of suggested books that we love for the season because um, I have my little yeah. stash that I bring out every year and yes. we you know, reread. So, yeah, it's getting to that well, time of year. I think we can definitely say those three should go on the Christmas list. Oh, they sound gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, going to add them to my list. Anyway, back to being middle grade mavens. Mm. (laughs) Amala, what is the title of today's book? Yes, so Into Middle Grade World and today I am reviewing Beverly Right Here by Kate DiCamillo, published by Walker Books in 2019. I didn't put the month down but I think it was August, maybe July. (laughs) Would you read the jacket blurb for us? Yes. Beverly put her foot down on the gas. They went faster still. This was what Beverly wanted, what she always wanted, to get away. To get away as fast as she could. To stay away. Beverly Topinski has run away from home plenty of times, but that was when she was just a kid. By now, she figures, it's not running away, it's leaving. Determined to make it on her own, Beverly finds a job and a place to live and tries to forget about her dog Buddy, now buried underneath the orange trees back home. Her friend Ramy, whom she left without a word, and her mum Rhonda, who has never cared about anyone but herself. Beverly doesn't want to depend on anyone, and she definitely doesn't want anyone to depend on her. But despite her best efforts, she can't help forming connections with the people around her, and gradually she learns to see herself through their eyes. In a touching, funny, and fearless conclusion to her sequence of novels about the beloved three rancheros, number one New York, best, New York Times best-selling author, Kate DiCamillo tells the story of a character who will break your heart and put it back together again. Good blurb, hey. (laughs) Once again, you know I can't actually read this because I'm fairly (laughs) certain that I will be blubbering. Yes. Um, Yeah, you will, but not as much, I think, as the other ones. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, (laughs) yeah, that's not selling it. Um, No, it sounds amazing. It's just I have to be prepared for a book like that. So That's true. That's true. tell us, what genre would you class this as? Well, <clears throat> I would say, given the, <laughs> the 
<laughs> we had a big discussion over the weekend about how we are not the middle-aged mavens, we are right. the middle-grade mavens, even though we're, uh, you know, around the age limit. Uh, I would say at my age, I would say it's contemporary, but right. as it's set in 1979, it's technically historical fiction, I think. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, mental shudder, but anyway. And what is the estimated word count here? Uh, it's fairly short. I think it's around 30,000 words. I read it in two evenings, but that was partly just because I couldn't put it down. So Yeah. Yeah. And what drew you to this book? <sighs> Need you ask. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, Kate, but... <laughs> no. Kate DiCamillo, of course. Um, and the fact that this is the final in the three Rancheros books, which started with Raimi Nightingale. It's it's not a series as such, but it's three different accounts of three different friends. So I don't generally review sequels on this podcast. We don't have a rule about that, but I just don't. Um, but in this case, given it's not technically a sequel and given it's Kate, um, yes. yeah, I have to. So tell us about it. So it's two years after Louisiana Elefante disappeared from her grandmother, four years after the three girls met. Beverly is now 14. She and Raimi are best friends and they haven't seen Louisa in a long time. Beverly has just buried her beloved dog, Buddy, and she can't face life or her mother without him. So after burying him with Raimi's help, she runs away. Chance takes her to a rundown beach town where she quickly finds a job, becomes friends with a boy and lands herself a place to stay with a lonely old woman who lives in a trailer. Now, that's pretty much the extent of the story without giving away too much. But this book, as with the other two, is about so much more. It's it's also about the different relationships she has with each of the people she meets in the town of Tamaray Beach, where she winds up. And it's about the unexpected places we find happiness and the balance of good and bad in ourselves and in the world and kindness and beauty and poetry and how sometimes we all just need a break from the everyday. Oh, sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> obviously the overall enjoyment here. Well, it goes without saying, really. I mean, I'd love a shopping list if Kate Dickie Miller wrote it. So Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, <I> just, <laughs> <laughs> um, Kate's writing, you know, in all her books, it's very staccato. She uses short sentences that are just stripped bare. There's no fat at all. And the writing is so close. It's right there in the character's head. So even though it's written from the third-person perspective, it's almost like it's in the first-person perspective. She's saying, you know, um, Beverly. She's not saying I, but it feels like it's I, like you are there with Beverly. Um, but with so few words, Kate manages to convey so much, so much about how it feels to lose a pet, to run away, to be a 14-year-old girl. I'm not Beverly, my life was not like hers, but I was a 14-year-old girl once upon a time, a long time ago, and, you know, Beverly took me right back there to that no-man's land between childhood and adulthood. And Kate has captured so beautifully the uncertainty and disappointment and confusion of being 14 in that beautiful, economical, staccato writing style of hers, you know. She, she draws you right into her character's world and holds you there for the duration of the book and then some. So <laughs> talk about... A book hangover, like just oh, series hangover, even though it's not a series. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, the the girls over at One More Page did in, an interview with Kate DiCamillo and I almost screamed when I, when oh, I saw that they no. did. And it was wonderful. Oh, my gosh, it's wonderful. Um, and I forget now what she called it. Um, 
it wasn't companion books. It, it just had this beautiful sort of name. It wasn't serious. Yeah. Anyway, to that so who will love this book? What age would you recommend it for? Um, Beverly is 14 now in this one and there's a sort of unwritten rule in the children's book world that um, the main character or characters should be around two years older than the target audience. And while this book is fairly simple, it isn't just about a 14-year-old girl who's passing herself off as 16, might I add. Um, yep. It's partly about being 14. An advanced reader of eight or nine I, look, I just don't think they'd, they'd get that, even though, you know, they'd be able to read the book. But, you know, Kate, never she never writes down to kids. Her use of language and her voice, it doesn't vary much, whether it's The Tale of Despero or The Tiger's Rising or The Tiger Rising or The Three Rancheros books. And it's it's the subtleties and the characters and the storyline that vary. And in this case, I think it's pegged at an older audience than the original Ramey Nightingale. But, you know, it's just my long-winded way of saying that I think this would be... <laughs> Perfect as a late primary, early teen novel, um, but it's still accessible to younger kids. And But I actually would think this is a great book club read. That's you know yeah. It's really great for discussion about all these different themes that are going on and, you know, a fantastic one for kids of that, or teenagers of that age. Yeah. And do you think reluctant readers would enjoy this or is it for more confident readers? Um, well, you know, given it's pretty short and very deep, it may suck in some reluctant readers, but, yeah, I don't know. I, but I do think it's a must-read for all 14-year-olds, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Pamela. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> so um, your book today, Julie, I... I almost snaffled this one before you did because this one looks yeah. gorgeous and yeah. we've seen um, the author's name around for a little while now so I'm quite excited about this about this one. So um, can you yes. share the title, please? The Secrets of Magnolia Moon by Edwina Wyatt, illustrated by Catherine Quinn, published by Walker Australia in November 2019. Mm, so very fresh off the back of the truck. Yes. And can you read us the jacket blow, please? Yes. Magnolia Moon is very good at keeping secrets. She knows just what to do with them and has a way of talking to the jumpy ones to stop them causing trouble. That's why people are always leaning in and whispering, can I tell you a secret? Oh, that's a short blurb. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was going to be more than that. <clears throat> um, what what genre is it? I would call it junior fiction bordering on middle grade contemporary. Okay, right. Because, yeah, it was hard to tell from, from the blurb and from the front cover, the, the which is beautiful, by the way. It's gorgeous. Yes. Um, I couldn't quite tell where it would sit. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So the word count? About 25,000 words. Okay, right. So it is that, that sort of upper junior fiction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so what drew you to this book? Well, the cover, of course, is mm. absolutely stunning by Catherine Quinn. Plus, Edwina is very active in the Australian Children's Author Network. Um, she has quite a few picture books out as well, which I promptly ordered from the library to have a read of. I managed to get a hold of Together Always, which is a gorgeous tale, the tagline being, what happens when the dearest of friends want to go in different directions? 
Giselle and I read um, that one and declared it was beautiful. Um, I also tried to get my hands on another one of Edwina's called Ponk, which wasn't in our local library. So I did what all good book nerds do. I did an Oz library request. So I um, plugged in the details to my library and asked them to purchase it for the catalogue and I'm still waiting for that one. But and we do bang on about our Oz library request and um, so just wanted to remind you if you haven't got the book in your library, um, check it out. <laughs> get, get on requesting. And is it possible um, to do an interlibrary loan? Yes, it is as well. Oh, yep. as well. Yeah, okay. Yep. I know in our library you do pay for them. Okay. Um, it's not it's a nominal fee, but yeah. Yeah. And I have noticed Edwina's latest one in the library, which is called Fox and Bird. And it's quirky and funny and will teach you a thing or two about navigating friendships. So I highly recommend um, those lovely picture books that I have read. Um, and The Secrets of Magnolia Moon is her first junior fiction. So when I saw the cover, I realised it was a Edwina. I contacted Walker and said, I'd love to review that one and perhaps even interview the author. And they said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so very excited. Mm, and it is the gorgeous cover. When I saw it, I thought, ooh, I want to read this. I yeah. still want to read this. I'm going to have to. Exactly. <laughs> I will send you mine. <laughs> um, so can you tell us more about the story? Yeah. Magnol Magnol <laughs> I'm never going to get the name right. I'm sorry, Edwina. <laughs> Magnolia Moon is nine. She lives at 84 Crocus Cottage on Chimney Pot Parade. Her best friend is Imogen May. Magnolia and Imogen are like two peas in a pod. They love to sit between their wishing tree in silence, hang upside down and discuss what kinds of fruits they would be. Like grapes, because grapes would never be lonely sitting there in a bunch. When Imogen May tells Magnolia Moon a secret, Magnolia's world tilts. She has to continue in a world without Imogen May for Imogen May is moving. Plus, Magnolia has not one but two new boys at school. As if, as if that isn't enough change to cope with, Mummy and Daddy Moon have another secret. They're expecting a baby moon. Oh, it sounds really sweet. Oh, it's so gorgeous. Oh, I, have to, I think I might have to get this for my niece because my niece is yeah. called Imogen May. <laughs> oh, what? Yeah, I know. Oh, I this is... <laughs> this is definitely a get on the Christmas list read as well. well she's so. 12, but, you know, it might be a bit yeah. young for her, but still, I don't think she'd like it. Yeah. Um. So, how did you like this one? Oh, I think the only way to describe this was it was exquisite. <laughs> Edwina's language just captures you from the first page. Magnolia Moon saw the world in a way no one else did and you couldn't help but be taken up on her quest. This is not a high action book. I guess you'd say it was more like significant scenes in Magnolia's life where she learns to come to terms with continual change. Magnolia was such a beautiful character and the way she embraces life, she could certainly teach us a thing or two about navigating the process. Now, the illustrations by Catherine Quinn were utterly breathtaking and I think I can actually say I have another illustrator crush. Mm, gorgeous. 
Yes. So um, what age would you recommend this for? So I started reading this one myself and in the morning and when Giselle came home, I showed her the book cover and she instantly wanted to read it um, and sort of, you know, scooted off upstairs with it. <laughs> I was like, hang on. Um, so once again, it took her a couple of nights and when she finished it, I asked her what she thought of it. She said it was just beautiful, mummy. Now, as she is eight, I'd certainly say this is for readers aged seven to nine and perhaps even those in the 40-plus age category who could benefit from Magnolia's wisdom. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Giselle's uh, reading's coming along really. She's a fast reader. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's starting to get quite astounding. So, It's such a great yeah. age. Yeah. Um, and do you think this is one for reluctant readers? I think this would actually suit both. Confident mm-hmm. readers would breeze through this. And, and no doubt be captured by the sweetness and innocence of Magnolia Moon's character. And I think reluctant readers would certainly find this an absolute delight. Oh, nice. Very good. And there we have it. That is episode 32. But don't run away, listeners, because we have Edwina White stopping into the middle grade Maven's hot seat coming up next. Enjoy, and we'll see you next week. See you next time. Episode. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are at Middle Grade Mavens, and a little recap for our listeners. We've recently reviewed The Secrets of Magnolia Moon by Edwina Wyatt, illustrated by Catherine Quinn, which was published in November 2019 by Walker Books Australia. Now, I personally find it fascinating to hear the story of how a book came to be. We thought it would be awesome to invite Edwina into the middle grade Maven's hot seat for some authorly banter. And guess what? She agreed. So hi, Edwina, and thanks for joining us at Middle Grade Maven's. Maven Julie, hello. (laughs) So tell us, Edwina, where did you get your start in writing? So my start in writing came quite um, by a happy accident, actually, about uh, 10 years ago. So I was 23 and I was just feeling really lost in terms of what I was supposed to do. Um, And up until then, it had just never occurred to me that I could actually try my hand at writing. Um, So I was at university and I was studying law and economics and my mum bought me a picture book out of the blue just because it had my rather uncommon name on it and it was called Edwina the Emu. Do you know it? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, that is beautiful. (laughs) It's a beautiful book and it's written by Sheena Knowles and illustrated by Rod Clement. And ironically in the story, Edwina the Emu is having a bit of an existential crisis too about what she could doing with her life. Um, so it was kind of perfect as I was having one too. Um, but I remember I had such a physical response to it, you know, this beautiful, bright relic of childhood. Um, and I remember I was meant to be writing some dreadful essay on constitutional law or something and at my kitchen table, but instead I was copying out the book word for word just so yeah. I could see 
how many words it had and how it was all put together. Um, and I remember just feeling all lit up inside and, and something just clicked and I was like, you know, who are these people that get to make this you know, gorgeous? Yes. Are they real people? Because, you know, children's publishing, it's just such subculture, isn't it? Like it's not transparent and you just don't know yeah. how it all goes on. Um, and so then, of course, I tried to write one myself and it was just, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> I cringe to remember. I think it was called um, No Dessert for David. (laughs) (laughs) Poor David. (laughs) Poor, poor David. Um, Yeah. And look, you know, I just, I cringe to remember. I even showed it to my criminal law professor at one point um, just because he had a young son. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's just so funny how you can barely recognise, like, former iterations of yourself without cringing, isn't it? Um, (laughs) So I then kind of, I just got so hungry for writing um, and I started obsessively collecting um, books and studying picture books. Um, And then I I wrote a couple more and I sent a story off. So I sent... um, I sent out to two different publishers and, you know, I was hanging by the mailbox and waiting. Um, And I got one rejection back, just a very standard generic letter. And then I got um, another one from a top five publisher. And it was a rejection too, but it was a lovely rejection. Um, And it said, you know, that we see the story as having potential and um, we like your voice, but it's a little bit too kind of um, adult focused and could you Mm. resubmit? So um, at the same time, I'd been looking around and thinking, well, do I need an agent? It seems that that's, you know, that's a way to get your foot in the door. Um, And I tried to get an agent before that, but I couldn't kind of get anyone to even read my books, um, you know, let alone kind of take me on. But then I took this positive rejection letter um, back to one of the agents who'd rejected me previously. And I said, look, I've got this um, opportunity to resubmit and what do you think? And they then took me on um, and gave me a contract on the basis of that rejection letter, which I think is just a really good example of how failure is so important. Um, And then she had the foresight to um, pair me up with the absolute powerhouse, uh, the former publisher of Little Hair Books, Magretta Lamond, um, and sort of skipping forward, we um, we ended up doing, you know, lovely picture books together. My first book came out in 2015 and I had a picture book um, a year since then. So um, the actual one that I was invited to resubmit, that actually fell through and that's a whole other story and an interesting yeah. one. Um, so that sort of, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't able to rework it like I kind of would now. I didn't really know how to edit, so it was almost yeah. a gift that it was rejected. Um, but, you know, to be paired up with Magretta was another gift. And so I feel very fortunate to have sort of stumbled down this track mm. and I've had a very soft spot for emus <laughs> ever I since, bet. I must say. <laughs> oh, well, that is a wonderful origin story, I have to say. So let's get to the secrets of Magnolia Moon. How long did it take you to write and what kind of research did you do for your story? Mm, Well, so um, with Magnolia, so we're skipping forward to about 2017 and I was uh, working with Walker Books at this time. They just signed up a picture book Um, and Magnolia Moon actually began as a picture book. So there's a bit of a story there. Um, So originally I'd been trying to write a book about the moon and I'd come at it from so many angles um, and I'd written a 500-word picture book called Moonheart 
and it was a horrible little story. <laughs> I look back about a boy called Finnegan um, who had Finnegan Moon, who had the heart of, of the moon. Um, it was overly complicated. Anyway, I sent it to um, the beautiful Nancy Conescu, um, who was my editor, and she, you know, she liked it, but she said, look, it feels almost as if that this story is, is bigger somehow and it's more suited to like a middle grade novel. And she asked if I'd ever considered trying my hand at writing for older readers. Um, and to be honest, I hadn't because <laughs> this is embarrassing to admit, but I had a, as a picture book writer, um, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about um, people's perception of picture books as sort of being practice books for the day right. that you write, you know, a real book. <laughs> of um, course. <laughs> and, you know, picture books are such like they're tricky and they're mysterious little vixens, you know, they're not, yes. they're not, um, they're deceptively simple. And I really revere the form and I sort of feel they're a bit like poems. You know, you could spend your whole life trying to perfect one and you just never get close. Um, yep. So I sort of gave this inward groan of, oh, you know, but then, um, you know, looking back, just completely forever grateful that I was nudged in this new direction and, and sort of asked if I would push myself. Um, so, look, I, I sort of went away and sat on it. Um, and as well, the pressure when someone sort of, um, you don't have that privacy when someone invites you to do something. So, of course, I came to this project with all these emotions and all this baggage of like, oh, gosh, I don't want to disappoint. This person seems yeah. potential in me to sort of do something different and they think I might be good at it, but what if I'm not? Um, and so all that inner critic, you know, it, it got a bit kind of full on for me. So I felt a bit anxious. Um, anyway, I then tried to turn that 500-word picture book into like a 50,000-word middle grade novel with the same name. So mm-hmm. like the same plot, <laughs> the same everything and it was called Moonheart and oh my goodness like it was just like there's just a new metaphor on every page and there's (laughs) owls and elks and hedgehogs everywhere and like it was just awful and Finnegan the main character was just so incredibly boring um (laughs) and that was really a big problem but I wrote it I wrote it feverishly for three months and it was sort of October um 2017 and it sort of went went crazy and, and finished this big book um, and then in sort of early January 2018, I brought it back to Nancy and I said, look, you know, I have done this. Um, what do you think? And I had, you know, like a 2,000-word prologue at the beginning. Of course. <laughs> of course. Um, so I showed it to Nancy and she was lovely. She said, you know, look, there's definitely magic in here. Um, but, you know, the adult character is actually kind of more interesting than the protagonist. Like there's, it's too adult-focused. Could you kind of rework it so that there's less... Um, you know, focus on Jeremy Moon, Finnegan's father, and more on Finnegan. So that, you know, was would have been a reasonably simple task, but I, um, you know, I sort of inside I already felt like it, you know, I didn't like it myself. It was I done, yeah. It was done yep. and it felt dead on the page. Um, yeah. So then sort of meantime, so I, I emailed back and I said, oh, yeah, thank you so much and I'll definitely do that. And I, I had every intention of going back and reworking it. Um, but in the meantime, my agent, at the time, a different one, um, she'd said, look, uh, would you, while you're working on your big middle grade, um, why don't you kind of try and write a really young junior fiction series, like a Billy B. Brown kind of character-driven series? Yeah. And I think she's just trying to keep me quiet. She was <laughs> just like trying to give me something to do so I, you know, stop yeah. Um, because I like to be busy. Yes. Uh, And, you know, I'm sort of books. You understand. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I I kind of sat down to do this task as well um, in the meantime to do this sort of junior fiction thing. But what was funny was that when I um, 
like as soon as I sat down to write it, I came back to all those things that I'm obsessed with. So I again came back to the moon. I again came back to a boy called Finnegan. I don't know why. Finnegan had to go, honestly, in the yeah. bin with David somewhere. Poor Finn. <laughs> Um, and I, um, I, I stumbled upon in the process of that Magnolia's voice and it was funny because it was so different to Finnegan's. It was just fresher and more vital. Um, so what I ended up doing was I ignored my, you know, instructions, which was to write like a thousand word kind of short story um, in a series. And I wrote something that was halfway between, you know, Billy B. Brown and then my, my, my middle grade, like an upper kind of junior fiction. Um, yeah. And I, I pinched all the things that I liked from Moonheart, the novel. So I took with it. Um, in that novel, there was a best friend called Imogen May. There was a town called Thistledown and a cat called Atlas and the grouchy talking staircase. Um, and then I dumped the 40,000, 50,000 words in the bin um, but, you know, none of it was wasted because without the picture book of Moonheart and then the novel, I wouldn't have kind of come into Magnolia. Um, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the time frame, I'd say, like, if you're including the writing of all three books um, that went into the making of Magnolia Moon, it was all up, all up about a year, which isn't very long. Um, and then for just the final version of Magnolia, it probably took about four months Um yeah. yeah. So in terms of research, I did a fair bit of research into Greek mythology, um, but mainly, yeah. mainly I noticed. <laughs> and that was all new for me. Like it was, it was something I I was enjoying discovering along with the writing. Um, it wasn't sort of a, an interest I'd already had. It was new. Um, but then there were all the weird like Google questions that you do, like what sound does a crow make? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and, um, and because of Magnolia's specific way of measuring time via lifetimes, there was a lot of Googling of like, you know, how long does a giant jellyfish live for? And Or I'd put like yeah. an ice cube on the bench and see how long it took to melt or light a match and oh, count the seconds. Brilliant. Sort of thing. Um, oh, yeah, brilliant. So, yeah, but the, the very funniest thing in terms of research was um, I remember there were a couple of funny emails between myself and the publisher um, because none of them had ever heard of a custard apple or tried one. Oh, my gosh. Custard apple in the book. And one day I opened up my email to this enormous <laughs> photo of, like, a green spiky fruit. Yep. The caps lock, is this a custard apple? <laughs> I'm like, yes, it is. Try it. <laughs> oh, we actually, before we read Magnolia Moon, I was saying, because I grew up in um, Brisbane and custard apples were every year, and I said, oh, we've got to get a custard apple when we go to Brisbane. And we've been trying to get one, and they're not in season yet. And Giselle was like, there's a custard apple in Magnolia Moon. Oh. And I'm like, what? Because I hadn't read it yet. She read it before me. So I was like, oh, it's meant to be. We've got <laughs> we've to bring them get back because they're delicious. Yes. You know, we're bring always eating back. bananas. You know, we miss out on all the other fruits. Oh, that yes. <laughs> Anyway, I think I just completely waylaid your train of thought there. Oh no, <laughs> no, no, no! So that was it. That's that's um, that's my research. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. So I always wonder, you know, you've you've presented this manuscript to the publisher, and then how much editing did you have to endure before it was ready to go to print? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there was. <laughs> The things you learn about yourself when you're editing, like I'm just such a total control freak and a total pedant. Um, I, yeah. uh, I I love editing and I love it actually more than I like writing. Um, you know your wonderful term, the first draft fever? 
Yes. <laughs> I get 50th draft fever. Oh, right. <laughs> so the problem with that is I get kind of like I like to slash and burn, but I also um, get a bit obsessive with small details. So in terms of the structural stuff, um, you know, that was quite um, that was quite fun and and easy. So Nancy had said um, interesting things like there were some seasonal changes that needed to um, go in. There was some timeline stuff that didn't work. Um, yeah. And, you know, Nancy was amazing at picking up things like we might need to put this chapter a bit earlier so we have some more space between those characters. Um, and that was all fabulous fun. But the ch the challenging part was the proofreading stage because I, oh, my goodness, I'm a chronic list maker and I actually wrote like a 2,000-word list of micro amendments along with commentary. <laughs> <laughs> during the proofreading stage you know like I might send three alternative positions for a comma or like four <laughs> different words that could be italicized differently depending on the rhythm of the line like that kind of bollocks wow. um, oh, wow. Walker was just like so kind because I send these you know apologetic emails just chastising myself for being a micromanager but then I micromanage even further um, <laughs> But my favourite editing moment had to be with the amazing Sarah Davis, who's the art director at Walker. Um, so I was, like, really late one night and I was editing and I found this enormous passage of, like, awful repetition of the word mama, like it was, you know, <laughs> right. mama this, mama that. And I was like, oh, mama's got to go. I'm going to be taking mama out all night. And then I got that, do you know that Scissor Sisters song? Um I won't yes. sing it. I'd like to. You know the one? Yes. Yep. Take your mum out all night? Yeah, yeah. Then I like, I got that stuck in my head and I completely lost the rhythm of this passage and it was, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get it out of my head and I emailed the list of amendments to Sarah um, and I told her that, you know, now I've got this song stuck in my head about taking mum out um, and I expected to get, you know, like an inward groan and a very polite reply that, you know, they'd add it to the other lists of amendments but instead... <laughs> She sent me back the um, the lyrics to the entire song, but instead of <laughs> taking your mama out, it was like we're going to take your manuscript out all night and show what it's all about, you know. Fantastic. And it's like, we'll get a, you know, if the edit ain't good. Anyway, I've got the whole song here, um, and like you know, if you um, if we go out for a drink one night, Julie, I'll um, I'll do some carry. We will. But <laughs> we will. It I was... cannot wait. <laughs> the manuscript version of Scissor Sisters. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but, but, you know, knowing that I'm such a pedant, the other problem was um, you can imagine I nearly died when I found a typo in the printed book. Oh. And I'll tell you what, because honestly, I just went over and over to the point where they said, like, let her go. Like, she's yeah, yeah. she's just okay. It's all right. And um, But I'll tell you what it was. <laughs> it's two words. You know, wanton, I've done it as two oh, words. Oh, like, yeah. In space, T-O-N. And it's amazing. Like, you can have six pairs of eyes yeah. going the same thing and you never see it and it's no one's no. fault um, no one saw the wonton no one saw the wonton and if i ever eat a wonton again julie It'll make I'll, you sick i will like i just cannot ever eat a wonton again and the other problem was that um when i went in with my last minute micro amendments um you know like different italics and various things at the like up to the hour we're talking when it went to print like that's what a nightmare i am um what happened was in the type setting uh, one of the lines that I then moved down, two words got put together. So it's like, you know, mama said oh. one word. And it's so funny because it's actually, for someone that's such a per perfectionist like me, it's a really good exercise in letting go and just accepting mistakes, you know, like yeah. you've got to set reasonable expectations for yourself. Um, but, you know, because I'm the sort of person that can only see like the error. I don't see the whole yeah. thing. 
And apparently, when I've talked to people about this, I've subsequently learned that it's called filtering and it's like... It's like a product of being deeply anxious, basically. But it's when, like, you can only see the bad and you don't see the good yeah. um, in the feedback. So I feel like it's actually, like, those typos, they'll be changed on a reprint. But, you know, they're almost, it's almost, you know, I think there's something symbolic about them being in there. Um, yeah. Because I'm okay with them now. Anyway, come for the book, stay for the free therapy, Julie. <laughs> they're going to gouge your eyes out every time you open that page. <laughs> well, they do, but I'm just having to learn it's all right. <laughs> I say yeah. I'm okay with it, but you can tell I'm not. I'm just I'm yeah. Okay. I can totally, totally tell. It's all right. We'll get some other therapies going later. Yes, that's right. <laughs> now let's talk book book covers, boot covers, book covers. Yep. Um, people can say they don't matter, but they matter to Maeve and Julie. And this one is exquisite by Catherine Quinn. Can you share how this book cover came together? Yeah, it's just gorgeous, isn't it? I am. Um, I was getting my hair cut when I first opened the email with the image and I was I was so nervous to see it that I downloaded the picture and then I covered it up with my hands so I like revealing yes. like tiny bits slowly corner by corner and the hairdresser just thought I was even weirder than <laughs> she already thinks I am. But it's just so beautiful. Um, so I think what was the most interesting part for me was watching kind of how professionals then bring their own approaches. So the, yeah. the very first draft of it... Um, was so you know Nancy Comiskewin and Sarah Davis um, were briefed and they had you know a meeting about it and then they told the illustrator what they wanted. Um, she came back with something glorious and immediately they were all saying, oh you know that's that's it. Um, so it's very similar. But then what was amazing was um, Nancy came in and she was tweaking things. So she was changing you know the contrast behind the whale, the size of the whale, um, kind of bringing things forward, doing different things with the lettering. Um, and it was amazing how it just made things pop. So um, if you see the sort of three or four different versions of the cover, they're just slowly, um, you know, getting better and better, but you can't really tell why. Like tonally yeah. something's happening and tiny little things are changing and you go, wow, that looks really good, but I don't know why, how it's different. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I just, yeah, I adore the cover. Uh, and Catherine's done such a beautiful job of the whole book. I adore her artwork. Oh, it's so stunning. The inside illustrations are amazing too. Like, I mean, generally you look at the cover and of a book and go, oh, mm. but when the inside matches the cover in gloriousness, you're like, oh, this is special. This is very yeah. special. Yeah, it's been a real joy. <laughs> so how do you manage the pressures of the world and still find time to write? Uh, look, I wrote most of Magnolia Moon in the fetal position. <laughs> Yes. In the middle of the night or on the floor with, like, small screaming children throwing Lego at me, you know, like, I wrote it in bed when I was sick. I had pneumonia twice that year. Um, wow. You know, I wrote bits in the shower. I walked and took notes on my phone. I did bits when I was washing up the dishes. Like, there's just no perfect time. And I, I guess the growth that I've had with that um, is to kind of just – I don't bother waiting to feel good about it. Like, I, yeah. it has to get done. And I think because I just – deeply respect and revere the work like I'm grateful to have the work um that it's not optional you know I don't wait um because I never feel I never will feel good about it like I think no I think people overly romanticize the act of writing and whereas I find writing to actually be quite stressful and it can be disappointing mm -hmm. and draining and just downright depressing and boring too like really yes. hard work um but because I just wouldn't 
do anything else and I'm just still so dogged about like I want to be a better writer I mean I think that's why I love being edited because I'm like you know fix me yeah <laughs> help me wrong help with me. me like help me like I want to yeah. Uh, you know, I, this is my, um, you know, this is my work and I, and I adore it. So I want to respect it by, um, you know, working as hard as it, like if you had all the other jobs I've had, like you don't go to work expecting to have a great day necessarily. You expect it to be hard. You expect it to be difficult. And it's not an option to just not turn up. So yeah. my view is just, you know, bums on seats, um, just do it. And usually just by opening it up and moving a sentence around for half an hour, um, that's better than nothing, you know. My yes. expectations are low in terms of progress. Like I would spend a day where I'm, yeah, I'm literally just moving italics. I mean, that's clearly my problem. Yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think small and, you know, slow and steady. Um, I'm going to yeah. have to go and have, look at all the italics in the book oh, <laughs> now that you've mentioned I didn't them. actually tell you. See, the, yeah, the truth is the italics were all left out of the proof. Oh, Imagine my nightmare when I then, um, <laughs> so they somehow didn't get in the typesetting they were left out and so about two weeks before it went to print I am literally going through the book line by line and oh, writing yes they need to be put in oh, um, wow. but it's amazing <laughs> the difference italics make like you need the emphasis you know yeah. it needs yep. to be in there so anyway Paul Walker books is all I can say <laughs> <laughs> they're very patient oh they're wonderful and like, they know I'm nuts and I think it's part of the deal <laughs> Fantastic. It's all in the contract. It's in the contract. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you read widely in the genre that you write for? Yeah, I do. I I read widely in general. So I read a lot of adult fiction. I read kind of everything, <clears throat> um, nonfiction, you know, everything. Um, so much so that a bookseller recently hinted that I'd been buying too many books. And I, took, uh. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> it's like, you know, an underfed, overworked bookseller doing themselves out of the sales to do me a public service. Because she could tell yeah. that there was no way that the week before I'd already got through those books. Yeah. <laughs> and I was yes. coming again. And I said to her, oh, you know, um, I said, look, I don't spend money on bags or shoes, just books. And yeah. she was like, we all have ways of justifying the money you spend. <laughs> and I thought that was such a major burn. <laughs> so true. It's so true. <laughs> very, very widely and far too much. <laughs> yeah. And what is one middle grade book you believe every child should have the opportunity of reading? Um, yeah, so I'm going to go with a beautiful book called The Cat with the Coloured Tail. Um, so it's written by the late Australian novelist and short story writer Gillian Mears and it's illustrated by Denali de Barrera. Um, wow. It's a really hard book for me to talk about, actually. I have really strong feelings on it. So it's a very, very short book. Um, it's deeply poetic and it's described as a lyrical and yearning fable about love and healing. Um, mm -hmm. So this book came out, um, so, you know, Gillian, she wrote, novels and nonfiction and, and short stories um and then the year before she died she had a very long struggle with ms um yep. really really painful battle and um she wanted her last book to be a children's book and i just thought you know just that was such an amazing gift and she uh basically wrote this book about mr hooper and a cat with a colored tail and they travel through the countryside in their ice cream van and they look for heart shapes in nature and they try to make people happy with their moon creams and loving the moon as I do, you know, it's really oh, a beautiful wow. um, But as they go, they then discover that the heart of the world um, is in danger and needs to be saved. So it's sort of high stakes, but it's very poetic and lyrical. Um, and I kind of, 
uh, I got really addicted to listening to Gillian talk before she died. She was this sort of extraordinary person. You know, she was described as being capable of saying the most sort of dangerous and disturbing things, um, but she just sort of said them so well that she could get away with it. Um, wow. And she wore these bright, like even when she was so sort of, you know, in so much pain and physically unable to do, you know, a lot of things, like even feed herself, she um, she wore these bright red dresses and she was described as making everyone else look anemic. Um, and oh, that's how God. writing feels. They make other books look anemic. She's just, um, she was a really, really special person. She uh, she loved horses like I do and she used to ride in her 30s. Um, well, all her life she grew up in Grafton and with all those jacarandas and she rode her horses and then when she got MS, uh, she, you know, was completely debilitated by it and couldn't even, you know, couldn't ride but couldn't in the end even get out to as far as a paddock to even look at a horse. Yeah. Um, and she, she said cats saved her life. Um, she had cats instead of horses and I often think about that and you know you could laugh at that but she really meant it it was their elegance and their pride and their grace and so yes. when she spoke about um, you know the cat with the coloured tail I often think about how cats saved her life and you know she was very outspoken she was a um, big advocate for voluntary euthanasia um, she did a lot of work in terms of that um, she's a fascinating writer and person and when she died you know I felt a real grief it was an extraordinary feeling well, you know, you, you feel like you know someone through their work. And I felt yes. like yeah. I felt, um, the books are very intimate and they're very, they're just very honest. And, and then for, you know, the last page of The Cat with the Coloured Tail, <clears throat> when I read it and I knew that the last words would be the last I'd ever read of hers, I've, I've not had that experience before. And, you know, I just wept, like the perfection of the last lines and, and the poetry of them, but also, you know, that she chose to write a children's book as her last book. And, you know, yeah. it's just... Really beautiful. So I would highly recommend that book. Um, and can I squeeze in a very quick um, shout out? Yes. For another one. Um, yes. <laughs> so Lenny, Lenny's book of everything by Karen Foxley. Oh, just of course. Yes. Masterpiece. Say no more. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, what a legacy to be left as your last book. Amazing. Mm. Have you read it? No, but I'm going to have to. <laughs> yeah, that will go on the list. Read it in a sitting, you know, it's tiny. Yeah. Yeah. So what is next in the wings for Edwina Wyatt? Don't keep mm -hmm. the mavens in suspense. <laughs> is is there another book being scrutinised by some wonderful editor as we speak? Um, so, yes, there's not a lot of writing going on at the moment. As you know, I'm moving house, so that's been... Yeah. In crazy. <laughs> um, I am in submission mode, um, which is, you know, that sort of horrible time where you're, uh, you know, it's like a professional course in, you know, personal development. It's a boot camp in, you know, getting yes. a grips on rejection. It's, it's something that yes. you come up against. So I've kind of got, um, yeah, a couple of things in the wings that are on submission. I um, have definitely found my lane, I feel, with um, with junior fiction. I'm really enjoying that. So I can I can say that there may be some, um, yeah, you can look out for some more of that. Fantastic. Dot, dot, dot. Um, <laughs> Beautiful. I have another, um, another picture book coming out in, so I have a, uh, it's in May and it's called Sometimes Cake and that's with Walker. That was the one that, that got me um, into Walker and it's been put back behind Magnolia. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, so that's exciting. That's been a long wait for that one and that's illustrated by Tams and Ainsley. And I have a, um, in 2021, I have a book with, um, you might recall I did a book with um, Lucia Mashulo, um, yes. together always, and we're yes. collaborating again on a book about cats. Um, of course, <laughs> just, it would be proud. Um, 
uh, called Olive, and that will be out 2021. And I have some other bits and pieces coming out. So, yeah, lots more from me. Um, oh, brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> well, it has been an utter delight, Edwina. Where can we find you online if our listeners are interested in checking out your books? Uh, yep, so you can find me at my website, which is edwinawyatt.com or on Instagram. So do say hello. I'd love to meet yes. you. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us at Middle Grade Mavens and I guess we should say goodnight. It was so much fun, Mavens. Thank you for having me. Spring is here despite the winter weather in Melbourne and the Mavens are keeping warm with more reviews and interviews. Next up, Pamela reviews The Monster Who Wasn't by T.C. Shelley. And Julie reviews Potkin and Stubbs by Sophie Green, illustrated by Carl James Mountford. If you'd like to know more about the Mavens, log on to middlegradepodcast.com or to find Julie online, drop by julieangrassobooks.com and to find Pamela, stop by www.ueckermann.net. <laughs>